0: We're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Hear God's word to you. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying "Saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat, Worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. uh, Filled with stories like this that um, capture our hearts, draw us in, and compel us uh, to listen to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus. And so we pray now as we uh, commit ourselves to, to study your word, that you would um, just send your spirit to uh, fill our imaginations, our minds, our intellects, our wills with your presence and your leading. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you give us this time each week to worship and to have you address our hearts. So speak to us now, Lord, as we uh, give ourselves to listen to what you have to say to us. We ask... In the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. So this past week, uh, I was having coffee with a, a friend of mine, a guy who's uh, he's older than I am. Uh, he's in his 60s. Sweet uh, man, has been walking with the Lord for years. Big hearted guy, love talking with him. And he told me this really odd story that had happened, and you're going to think it's very odd. But he was saying that, about six months ago, he was loading um, six bags of mortar into the back of his truck and on a wood pallet. And he remembers distinctly, as he was loading these bags, that because he has a bad back, he doesn't load them long, long ways like this, but crossways. And he had three, three stacked, three high in the back, three high in the front. And and then in the back of his truck, he had all kinds of tools around this, this pallet. So, you know, it really was crammed in there. And he left it for the night, and he went to bed. And in the morning, he came back to unload these six bags of mortar. And in the morning, he came, and he went to reach, and he realized they were now long ways. And, and he said, you know, I, I'm absolutely positive that when I left them they were crossways. And so, you know, it's great when you hear him tell the story. He says, you know, I didn't know whether it was the devil or the Lord who was me- messing with my mortar, you know. And so the first thing I did was I rebuked the devil in the name of Jesus. But then he said, he said you know, and then the Lord spoke to my spirit and said it was, it was me. And then, and then he said that there was this lesson in this strange thing that had happened that the Lord said, I am a God who can turn things around. I can turn people around. I can turn nations around. And he said he spent the next 20 minutes there just in tears, just worshiping the Lord and just amazed. And and he said, and then he said to me, you know, this is why I love being involved in people's lives is because we worship a God who can turn people around and turn nations around. It's this great story. And, you know, I know for many, some of you, you hear that and you say, come on the mortar was turned around, he was hundreds of pounds, and, you know, he must have, you know, that just can't happen, please, come on. And, you know, if that's you, first of all, I just want to say that there's absolutely no evidence anywhere that says that God cannot do something like that, okay? No, God does not normally do things like that. God is very orderly in how he usually runs the world, but this is his world, and you know what, we are about? We just read a story that we're going to read very seriously about Jesus walking on water. And that's the kind of thing that can happen in this world because God does what he wants to. But actually, that's not why I tell you this story. The, the thing about this story, about the mortar that I really love is because when he was telling me about this kind of miraculous thing that had happened, the thing that was important wasn't that God was kind of doing something magical. It was that God was teaching him something about his character. And he used a miracle to teach him about who he was, that he's a God who turns things around. And, uh, and you know, I think for many of us, if you're familiar with this story that Jesus walked on water, it's a very famous uh, miracle that Jesus did. Um, you know, it's kind of like, what's the point of this? It just seems like he's doing something magical. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, this is something that I've always wondered, like, what is the point of this miracle? And it was really this week in studying it that I realized that this is a miracle. There is a lot that Jesus wants to teach us about who he is and who God is. And in particular, as you read through this passage, you'll notice there's there's a number of bits of dialogue and everything that is said by the disciples and by Jesus is just kind of loaded with meaning. You can reflect on every... There's seven, actually, bits of dialogue in this. Four things that the disciples say and three things that Jesus says. And each thing tells us on the one hand about who Jesus is, but also the, the things the disciple says are all these exclamations. They're really charged with emotion. There's a lot of emotion happening in this passage. And so what I want to do this morning is look at these, these things that are said both by Jesus and by the disciples, and, and we're going to see that there are four things that they teach us about Jesus and also about our emotional life. This miracle has something to teach us about who he is. And these are the four things that I that I want to point out, and we're going to kind of consider together. Is that first of all, the first it teaches us that Jesus is the Creator, and so we should not be afraid. Second, that Jesus is the King, so we should be ambitious. Third, that uh, Jesus is the Judge, so we should be humble. But lastly, that Jesus is God, so we should worship Him. Jesus is creator, Jesus is king, Jesus is judge, and Jesus is God. These are the four things we're going to look at together as we uh, consider this passage from Matthew 14. So, first thing. Jesus is the creator of all things, and so we should not be afraid. Something about Jesus, something about our inner life. And, you know, this passage begins where Jesus, in the last passage, if you were here last week, Jesus did his another famous miracle where he fed the 5,000 uh, people. And, uh, and so he's kind of taking care of the crowds and dismissing them and he sends his disciples ahead on a boat uh, and they go out on a boat and then a storm hits this boat and they're just getting hammered by the waves and by the wind. And then it says this in verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now the fourth watch of the night, that's about 3 a.m. to 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., So, you know, some people have said, well, you know, it's kind of getting close to morning. Maybe there's a morning twilight. That's why it's not pitch black. They can kind of see off in the distance. You see there's this guy walking on the water. And, you know, a a number of people have said, you know, maybe they thought he was walking on the water. Maybe he was actually on the beach and they were just kind of close to the beach. And he's, you know, it it was nighttime and they didn't really know what happened. But Matthew actually makes a point in this passage to say that they were a long way from land. They were in the middle of the sea and Jesus comes out walking on the water. Now, as I mentioned, for a long time, I, I really haven't understood what is Jesus trying to teach in this miracle. Because, you know, especially if you look in some of the other Gospels, like the Gospel of John, Jesus' miracles are really tied to his teaching, things that he wants to teach. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, he feeds the 5,000, and then he gives a sermon on, I am the bread of life. And Jesus, oh, the miracle, is he's teaching that he's the bread of life. And then in, Ma- in John chapter 9, uh, Jesus heals a blind man. And then what is his teaching. I'm the light of the world. I'm teaching you that I'm the light of the world. I give you spiritual sight. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and then Jesus' teaching is, I'm the resurrection and the life. So all of Jesus' miracles are teaching us something about who God is and about his character. And it wasn't really until this week studying this passage that I thought about, you know, walking on water, what does that have to teach? It just seems like a magic trick. But what I realized was that walking on the water is something that God, Yahweh, of the Old Testament does. Here are a couple verses from the Old Testament. This is uh, uh, Psalm 77, 19. that talks about the Exodus when Israel passed through the Red Sea in, in the Old Testament. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. It's this picture of God walking through the sea. And, or another place, Job, Job 9, 8. He alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. It's this picture of God as the creator. And the way that God creates things is he's trampling on the sea. It's God walking on the sea. And what this is, when Jesus comes walking on the ocean, he's identifying himself with the creator of the Old Testament. And, and you know, maybe the most uh, uh, clear allusion is if you read in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it talks about how the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the sea. Uh, you know, o- o- over the formless and the void sea who is hovering over the sea, and now it's it's Jesus who is walking over the sea, showing himself to be the Creator, that even the wind and the waves do his bidding. He is the Lord of all nature It's an amazing uh, amazing thing he's teaching us and so in that sense, when you find out that Jesus you know there's something strange about someone walking on water, you know and, and it shows us that there's something different about Jesus than us. He he's a different kind of person. And there's something alien. And you you see that there in verse 26. Look at verse 26. So Jesus comes walking on the water and then it says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. You know that that image of a ghost gives you the sense of being alien, being foreign. You are something that is unnatural. Jesus is someone that has come from outside of nature. He is the creator who is outside of nature coming into nature. And you find that he's different than us. And you know, that'll be experienced. If if any of you are are new to the Bible or, or to Christianity or learning about following Jesus, that's one of the things that you'll experience about him is that he is strange in many ways. He will make you uncomfortable. He will feel foreign in many ways. He is very attractive. He's very fascinating. He's mysterious. And you want to come to him, and yet there's also a terror about him. Not just because, uh, you know, he does strange things, but also he has this authority. He has this power. And so, you know, there's some question of like, okay, if I give myself to Jesus, what is he going to do with me? Once he gets his hands on me, I mean, he's, he's, got, he's the creator. He can do anything with my life that he, uh, that he wills, and so it can be frightening. And so what that means is that in order for us to know what it's like to, to walk with Jesus, to love him, to trust him, it's not enough that we know that, we, that he's powerful, that he's the creator, and that the, all of nature does his bidding. That's not enough you also have to hear what he says to his disciples in this passage because he adds something. They come, they're terrified, they're freaked out, he's a ghost. And then what does Jesus say? Verse 27, these great words. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. These words of comfort. I'm powerful and I'm good. You don't need to be afraid. And so he matches this authority and power with with this tenderness. And, you know, I, I probably mentioned this before, that that's Jesus' most repeated command in the Gospels, is to not be afraid. He says it over and over again, telling his disciples, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, telling people not to be afraid, telling us to not be afraid. And But this, this time when Jesus says not to be afraid, it's something very personal about it, right? When he says, it is I, I'm here, you should not be afraid. And, you know, for many of us, I know that many of you have talked to me about Struggling with fear, struggling with anxiety. And there's many ways that we kind of try to deal with fear and anxiety. You know, we use our mind to be more rational and say, you know, I should not be afraid. These are the reasons why I should not be afraid. And kind of coach yourself and talk to yourself as a really good thing to do. You know, or just maybe calming exercises. You have ways to kind of calm yourself. That's a good thing to do, get your body calm. But all of these things are ways that I deal with my fear and my anxiety myself. But there's something much more personal here. You know, there's something, when there's another person that comes in your presence, they have a power to dispel your fear and anxiety like nothing else in in ways that you can't do it yourself. And that's what Jesus says here, is to have someone who's wise, who's good, who's strong, who is with you. That, like nothing else, can dispel your fears. And so what we see in this passage is that Jesus shows his strength as the creator and sustainer of all of nature. And yet he comes and he tells you and me, take heart. Now listen, there may be some of you that are going through things right now. You need this, you know, it's a gentle word of courage to you. Take heart. He is with you. And don't be afraid. Hear those words, okay? So first of all, the first thing we learn in this passage is that Jesus is a creator, so we should not be afraid. But, you know, one of the things I love about, about this little story is Jesus tells the disciples, do you not be afraid? It's me. And what does Peter say? He says, okay, I won't be afraid. I'm going to go walk on the water too. You know, and he's like, okay, he listened to him; He wasn't afraid. And, and so we learn a second thing in this passage about, about Jesus in our inner life is not just that Jesus is a creator, so we should not be afraid, but also that Jesus is the king. So we should be ambitious. Because of Jesus' kingship, we should have a risking, ambitious spirit about us. And this is a a part of the story that some of the other gospel writers don't include, that, that Peter also walks on water. It's not just Jesus who walks on water, but Peter does as well. And you see this here, verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat... And walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, I think for many of us, you know this is a really endearing quality of Peter, you know that he wants to go walk on the water, too. you know, I was thinking about this passage and why is he walking? You know, there's a storm going on. The boat's getting racked. And, you know, they thought he was a ghost. They're all terrified. And what Peter's thinking about is, you know, I want to walk on the water too. What's, why does he want to do that? And I can only just think that he has kind of an adventurous spirit. You know, this, would be, this is my one shot to walk on water. I don't care if there's a storm. I'm going to go for it. And so he asked Jesus, you know, can I, can I, can I come walk on the water too? It's, and, you know, but what I love is in the midst of his adventurous spirit there's also this sense of submission to Jesus he understands that Jesus is his king and his lord you hear the language of it how he says command me to come to you command me to come and you know I think for many of us when we think about saying Jesus is my king I give my allegiance to him. I do his bidding. I, I obey him. Many people think becoming a Christian is just going to be like a straitjacket, and you're going to have all these rules, you know, and Jesus is king, and you can't do this, and you can't do that, and, um, and it's going to be really limiting on your life, but what we learn in this passage is that it's actually when we make Jesus king that our life becomes far more ambitious, far more risking, far more adventurous, and that's what happens here. It's when, we, when Jesus is king that he commands us, get out of the boat. Get out of the boat, take the risk, go walk on the water he's the one who says, come and you know I, I personally I love this aspect about Jesus that um, when his disciples make requests like this, I want to walk on water. you'd know, you, you think there's? aren't there more important things than you know Peter having a little fun on the water aren't there more important things and and yet, um, Jesus. Uh, what does Jesus say to Peter when Peter says, let me come out of the boat and walk in the water too? Does he say, you know, why are you being so brash? Or, you know, you're, you're not going to believe enough. You're going to be sinking in a minute. Jesus probably knew that he was going to start sinking any minute. Does he say, you know, you're probably not going to be able to do this? No, he just says, come. And, uh, you know, there's a, great, there's a great story in Mark 10 <laughs> where two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, who traditionally have been... Uh, considered the, the youngest of Jesus' disciples, have been scheming. And they come and talk to Jesus and they make this request to Jesus where they say, Jesus, when you're in your kingdom and you're in your glory, can we sit at your right hand and your left? Can we be like number two guys? And, you know, when Jesus establishes his worldwide kingdom, we want to be number one and number two. And you'd think Jesus would be like, how arrogant, you know? You think you get to be number one and you Are you just going to ask me? And, you know, the audacity for you to come and ask me. And does Jesus shut them down and say, don't be so ambitious? Don't be asking for such big things? No, he doesn't. He says, first of all, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I can drink or to be baptized with the baptism with with which I am baptized? So he says, first of all, you know, if you want to sit, in order for me to get my kingdom, I have to die on the cross. You want to sit on my left hand and my right, you're going to have to die on the cross too. Do you know what you're asking for? Are you able to do that? And what do they say? Yeah, I think we can do that. All right, that's fine. And they say, we are able. And, and then Jesus says, you will. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. He doesn't shut down their ambition. All right? He's honest with them, and he tells them what's in store with it, but he invites, and actually his kingship enables and encourages our ambition. It doesn't shut it down. Now you may ask, you know, well, what does that have to do with my emotional life? Ambition. Well, for some of you, if you're an ambitious, kind of risking kind of person, you will know that th- that risk and some spirit is a big part of your emotional life. It's a big part of having a satisfying and you know, fulfilling life. It's, it's a deep part of your emotional life. But also, if you're not a risking, adventurous kind of person, what is the thing that is hindering you the most from being you know, risking and ambitious? It's your emotional life, right? It's your inner life. There are things, it's fear and things that are happening inside of you. And so this is deeply connected to our, so Jesus, so Peter saying to him, command me to come to you, is a great instruction for us of how does that become a part of our life. Is that when we acknowledge Jesus as king, what we're doing is we're presenting our bodies to Jesus and say, do your bidding, command me what you will. And it's by presenting our bodies to Jesus that we learn what godly ambition is. By presenting our bodies to Jesus for his service, we learn what godly ambition is. Um, Now, I mentioned godly ambition. You know, some of you, when you hear that word ambition, that could have a a positive connotation or a negative connotation, and there's a lot of negative connotations that go with ambition because it, you know, it sounds like getting ahead, being competitive, or you know, being wealthy, earning a lot of money for myself. So what is the thing that, that distinguishes to make sure that, I ha- that my ambition is, is godly and not a selfish ambition? And that's the third thing that we learn about Jesus in this passage, not just that he's the creator, so we should not fear, but he's also the king, and so we should be ambitious. But the third thing is that Jesus is also a judge, he is also the judge, and so we should be humble. Because Jesus is the judge, that should make us humble. And it's, you know, it's a little bit shocking in this passage because uh, Peter gets out of the boat, he starts walking on the water, and then he starts sinking. And um, you know, it says there in verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! And so there's this great picture of Jesus in the next verse where he says in verse 31, uh, and Jesus immediately reached out his hands and took hold of him. And you're imagining this is is a great moment of Jesus, when we're failing, he's there to pull us out of the water. He's there to be there for us. And you're just like, there's going to be a nice tender word coming from Jesus where he's going to say, you know, at least you tried your best. And I'll be there to pick you up when things are going bad, right? That's what we're expecting if you hear from Jesus. Is that what he says? Not exactly what Jesus says. He pulls Peter out of the water and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? There's a correction there. <laughs> it's kind of a harsh word. Oh, you of little faith. Why don't you just believe? You'd be, why don't you keep your eyes on me? Why are you looking at the waves? There's a correction and so it's an inch, you know the being with Jesus is complex because on the one hand, you're going to be with him and you're going to find out, oh, he, he takes care of my fears and he's in my presence and he says, take heart. I, it is I and don't be afraid. And yet, he also calls you out. He names the sins that are inside of you. He names where you're weak. He names where you need to grow. There is a sense where he is a judge and that is a part of his goodness. It's a part of what we need and want in our life. You know, there's a, a, a hymn called... In the secret of His presence, which uh, it's an old hymn that was put to a new tune uh, by Christopher Minor uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so, and I, I listen to it quite often on my way to church on Sunday mornings, and it's a, it's really beautiful hymn about being in Jesus' presence, and it has, you know, one of the verses sounds like this, where it says, "When my soul is faint and thirsty, beneath the shadow of His wing, there is cool." And pleasant shelter in a fresh and crystal spring, and my Savior rests beside me as we hold communion sweet. If I tried, I could not utter what He says when we meet. You know, it's just this tenderness, cool springs, being in Jesus' presence, refreshment, comfort. But there's another verse. You know, this is where the whole hymn is like that. But it has this, these two lines in the third or fourth uh, verse where it adds this. Do you think that he never reproves me? What a false friend he would be if he never, never told me of the sins which he must see. That if Jesus does not name the sins that are in my life, he is a false friend. And that is an important piece that humbles us. The thing that humbles us, that, that it's not just ambition, it's not just like do whatever you want and have an adventurous spirit, but there's a humbling that happens in our inner life when we realize that Jesus is also a judge. He's also holy. And that's actually, that's an important thing for us in our culture because we live in a self-esteem culture, right? That my generation has learned that the reason that people do bad things is because they have a low self-esteem. And, you know, which actually, if you look throughout history of sp- people who did, have done spiritual reflection throughout history, that would be mind-blowing that you think that people have, need to have a higher esteem of themselves and that will make them more loving and, and more generous people. And actually, there's a, uh, there's a, I just heard about a study this week that studied um, people with low self-esteem and high self-esteem, and it turned out that people with high self-esteem tend to do far more evil things. Because they have a sense of entitlement. Because they have a high view of themselves. And actually, people with low self-esteem are more dutiful. They're better citizens. And, uh, and it's not clear that high self-esteem is what we need. And um, this insistence on high self-esteem, of course, we have brought into the church as well. That we think, you know, only tell me that Jesus says I'm good. Jesus accepts me. That Jesus never says a hard word to me. But what the hymn says is that would be a false friend. That's not what a, that's not what a good friend does. That just tells you everything you want to hear. Even just our, you know, not God himself, but even our just human friends need to tell us the truth. And Jesus the judge tells us his truth and teaches us humility. But of course that raises a question. You say, okay, if self-esteem is not what human flourishing looks like, is that I have a high view of myself... It's also, you know, are you saying that self-hatred is what I should live in? Isn't self-hatred a problem? And absolutely, self-hatred is just as much of a problem as self-esteem. They're both a problem. So how should I be living? What does it look like in my inner life? This is the fourth thing that we learn in this passage, is that Jesus is God, so we should worship him. Jesus is God, so we should worship him. Which is to say, we're not to have a high view of ourselves or a low view of ourselves. We're supposed to be not thinking about ourselves. We're supposed to be not turned inward thinking about ourselves. We're supposed to be thinking about him, beholding him, and having a high view of who Jesus is, and worshiping him and devoting our life to him and not to ourselves. And when we're captured by him, we're freed from both self-esteem and self-hatred. And, you know... For some of you, you know, you may, you may have asked the question, does the Bible really say that Jesus the man was God? Does that actually say that anywhere? And the reality is that on almost every page in the New Testament, there are statements like this one in verse 33, which could not be clearer about who Matthew is trying to tell us who Jesus is. It says in verse 33, and those in the boat, so uh, Jesus gets in the boat and he he calms the storm and calms the waves and then it says in verse 33 and and those in the boat worshipped him saying truly you are the son of God now it's important for us to remember that the men in the boat here are Jews first century Jews they would have been absolute strict monotheists, which means they believe that there is only one God and you shall not worship any God but the one true God. And so for them to bow down and be worshiping Jesus can only mean one thing, that they understand that he is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, the God who has created all things, and they worship him. And uh, he is God himself become a man. Now, let me just tell you why this is an important point. It's because, you know, up to this point in the sermon, you know, there's a lot of things we could say about Jesus. We say, you know, I do, I struggle with fear and anxiety. And if I could get a little Jesus to help me manage my fear and anxiety, that okay, that would be helpful. All right. Maybe Jesus could help me with that. And you know, also, I have trouble being risking and ambitious and, you know, setting goals and kind of getting out there and getting out of the boat. You know, maybe a little bit of Jesus in my life could kind of help me incorporate that into my life. Or, you know, I realize that I have some areas that I could use some correction and, you know, someone to kind of be a mirror to reflect to me what's my character and some things I could work on. Maybe Jesus could kind of help me with some of those things. And when we approach Jesus in that way, all along... He, he's kind of like a life coach for us, right? You know, I'm still kind of running my life, and I get a little bit of Jesus to kind of give me some counsel and some advice when I need it. He's like a wise mentor, right? But the reality is the reason why Jesus knows how to handle my fear, knows how to get me out of the boat, <laughs> knows how to humble me and bring humility in, is because he is the very purpose of my existence. He's the one who's made me. And so, he, of course he makes sense of all these things because he's the very one who makes sense of my life. And so when we ask the question, why do I even exist? Why am I here? What is life about? We're getting to this fundamental question. It is about him. It is about Christ. It is about the God who has made me, who has come to me in Jesus. And we have to realize that our culture has no answer to the question, what is my life about? What is, why am I here? Our culture has no answer to that. And since we have no answer to it, we find all kinds of other things to make the center of my life, right? And so, for example, I'm I'm reading a great little book by uh, Ed Catmull, who's the um, president of Pixar Animation Studios. If you know Pixar, they made uh, Toy Story and WALL-E and um, Monsters, Inc. and all these movies. And uh, he tells a story about how he create, you know, he's been the leader of, of Pixar for many years, and he says that when he was a child he had a dream that he wanted to be the first person to make a f- a feature-length animated movie. It was his dream for many years, and he, you know, he got a PhD in computers computer science and computer graphics, and he started Pixar, and they went through all this work to, and Toy Story was their first movie they made, and it was a total box office hit, and they made tons of money. And in the story, as he's talking about the story of Pixar, he talks about after Toy Story was made, how he felt. And you'd think, man, this is a lifetime dream. You'd think that the experience would be fulfillment, satisfaction. I've accomplished something. This is what he says. For 20 years, my life has been defined by the goal of making the first computer graphics movie. Now that the goal has been reached, I had what I can only describe as a hollow, lost feeling. Hollow, lost feeling? You just accomplished your life goal and it's hollow and lost? How can that be? It's because making movies is a good thing, but it shouldn't be your God. It can't answer the ultimate question of why you are here. And it's only when we find that Jesus is our God, he is the one, the only one that's worth the full devotion of our life that we're going to escape that hollow and lost feeling is to find him to be our creator who's powerful, who's good, who dispels our, 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 our fear, but who's also the king who bids us to get out of the boat and to come to him and to risk, but who's also the judge who humbles us and he's the God who truly satisfies belongings. We were made to worship Him. And it's only when we worship Him that our inner life begins to come together and make sense. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, what a complex web there is inside of us. We pray that you would teach us um, to come to you to hear your words that we should not be afraid and to believe those words, that we indeed would take heart and that your words would humble us and your words would challenge us. And I pray especially for those who are here who uh, may not know that you indeed are God. You are the very purpose of our existence and our life will not make sense until it it finds its sense in you. So, uh, Lord, guide us to yourself. Give us faith. Give us repentance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.